When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Chuck, always good to have you as my co-host there. Thanks for being here. Always good to be here, man. And we're going to talk about uh, the, the, the neuroscience of learning. And neither you nor I have any such expertise. So we, we, we got to go to our go-to person in this, Dr. Heather Berlin. Heather, welcome back to Star Talk. Thanks. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, and this is Star Talk at the Science is Cool Virtual Unconference. And uh, who knows how many countries are represented here. And I'm, I'm delighted. It's a reminder that it is one world and education is a thing that we all care about. And so, uh, educate at least most, <laughs> most of us care about. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm, it's a little hy- hyperbolic uh, to say we all care. <laughs> Let's remember, we are we are beaming out from America, <laughs> but we have teachers care, and teachers are the primary audience here. So for sure, That's right. we got a hundred percent of them uh, of those who care. Uh, and Heather, let me just finish your 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 bio here. So you're a neuroscientist and clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Yes, is indeed. That, did that's, I get that right? That's all it is. That's it. That's me in a nutshell. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's all. That's all it is. That's it. That's all. <laughs> all right. So Heather, let me just start off um, by saying uh, when we learn something new, what happens in our brains to either learn it first, you know, to, to, to climb the wall or the barrier to learn it and then to retain it? What change happens in our brain for that yeah, to take I mean, place? So learning is actually a physical change in the brain. And the best way to remember this is there's a saying we have in neuroscience, cells that fire together, wire together. What? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Look at that. Look at the brain going on. The brain is just having happy hours and just... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But, you know, that's what it is. So once you sort of, you make a connection, the more you rehearse it, that's what studying is about. The more you go over something over and over again, you're actually teaching these neurons to fire together and then they regrow. They grow new receptors so that the next time it's stimulated, it's easier to uh, make that connection. So you're actually developing new neural pathways that are firing quicker in your brain. That's what learning is. Well, but some people will remember something forever upon learning it once and others have to be, keep being reminded of it. So what's the difference there? Is it, it's a well, brain chemical? Usually, stupid. 
I believe the difference is one of them is stupid. <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> See, Neil, there's, there's smart people and then there's not so smart people. Okay, Chuck, you were reminding us why we have an actual neuroscientist on the show to give us, to tell us what, what actually, what's really going on. Okay. Well, I mean, okay, they're the very, very rare people that have, you know, what, what they say is like a, a, you know, they can see something immediately, remember it. But for the average person, that can happen usually when it's tied to something either personally significant to them um, or when they learn it, it's involved with um, a lot of emotions are being stimulated at that time because emotions tag memories. And if you think about it, what is learning? Learning is really forming a memory, right? Learning is, is intimately linked to memory. And so emotions tag memories as important. So we call those flashbulb memories. So we'll remember, you know. Wait, wait, wait we Heather, no one knows what a flashbulb is. No one under 30. So please tell us what a flashbulb okay. is. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> There are these old-fashioned cameras. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. <laughs> you ever met, and you see them in these, you know, period pieces um, where they would flash a light bulb really quickly, and the light bulb would actually would then go out because it was so bright. And that's like, timed with the, the photograph they're out. taking. So the, 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 the instant the flash occurs the exposure in the camera opens up so that the scene is lit up for the film because the film was not sensitive enough to light mm -hmm. to just use ambient light and you needed the flash. Okay, so there we go. There you go. So, but it's this idea of taking a very momentary imprint and that it just kind of stays permanently. And usually when there's an emotion involved that tells the brain, hey, this is something pretty important. You should remember it. Um, so when you're... That's experiential. But when you're learning, if things are tied to emotion, if they're personally significant, they sort of get ingrained into your neural network in a different kind of way. And that's why they say to learn things better, you should tag them to things that you already know. So wait a minute. So on, on Star Talk, um, we have Chuck, who is occasionally funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kind of like an eclipse. <laughs> Just I'm, I'm, I'm funny like an eclipse. Uh, rarely. No, no. Chuck, we have Chuck because our intuitions tell us that if you laugh while you're learning, that's an important associated emotion. The, the joy that gets attached to this bit of knowledge that you just acquired. And we tell ourselves, but you can affirm this or deny it, that that enhances people's not only appreciation for what they've learned, but the longevity of, of uh, its duration in your head thereafter. Exactly. Well, the thing about humor is that it activates um, the reward system in the brain and releases this neurochemical dopamine. And dopamine actually enhances both your motivation and long-term memory. So. As long as you can activate, it has to be the right kind of humor, though. Studies show that if it's inappropriate humor or maybe just not that funny, it doesn't work as well for learning. Oh, but why, why, right why, why, you gotta, why you got to do me like that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I was feeling, I was feeling so good. I'm like Chuck Nice is part of the dopaminergic system. What is going on? Oh, this is great. And then you're like, got to qualify it, like, oh, but it's got to be the right, the kind right kind of humor. <laughs> Not just any old Chuck it's style humor. Right. You can't just. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so but in a sense, if you can if you can um, stimulate those neurochemicals in the brain, people remember better. Also, humor tends to tie things to to imagery, to stories, and again, you're activating the larger neural network. And instead of just learning rote facts, you have a context in which you can embed that information and then you'll remember Is it this similar to when people say the smell immediately brought back an entire uh, graphic memory of some trip they took? That smell being a sort of a sensory uh, feeder to your capacity to remember? Absolutely. I mean, smells are, it's one of our primary senses because it's the only sense actually that goes straight to the cortex. The other senses go through something called the thalamus, which is like a relay station in the brain and then it sends it to the cortex, I didn't know that. but smell is is very direct. It's a very primitive, um, primary sense, and most of it is happening unconsciously. So, can you? Um, what's the difference between learning something that's already known and creativity in sort of creating something that no one has thought to do or think before? So, this is something I'm really interested in on um, creativity. So, how I define it is kind of is, is making novel associations between ideas. 
making connections that other people haven't seen before. But in order to do that, you need to first take in all of the facts, all of the information. So if you look at someone, say like Darwin's theory of evolution, he had to take in all the information, did all the research, and then based on that basic information or data, came up with a new way to connect it all in this kind of theory that, well, maybe Lamarck, but other people didn't think of before in, in that way. Right. And so that I think is creativity is coming up with novel ideas based on what everybody else knows, but no one thought of before. And by the way, usually when somebody comes up with it, everyone goes, oh, yeah, of course, that's so obvious. But yet nobody else thought. of So it. this is a, a common definition of genius where they say a genius is the person that sees what everyone else has seen, but thinks what no one else has thought. And so that's an interesting way. But then if that's the source of our creativity, that argues for learning as much as you can so that you have the, so at least you have the capacity. Reference points. To, to, to connect. Reference points. To restitch it together. Because without it, you've got, you've got no foundations for being a genius. Is that a fair way to put it? Absolutely. I think all sort of geniuses are when they say they have these flashes of insight you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. They've actually put in the work, they've put in the time, they've collected all the information. And then usually most of what happens is happening unconsciously outside of awareness, which is why sleep is very important for coming up with new ideas because the brain is consolidating the information. But you have to put in the work, take in the inf information, let your brain mull it over, and then come up with these great Can insights. I tell a quick story? When I was in college, um, uh, and I, I well, in, in calculus, all right, uh, probably most kids out there who are listening haven't had calculus yet, but you will if you, <laughs> or you should. Calculus is a, is a brilliant branch of mathematics, very advanced. But there's a rule in calculus called L'Hopital's rule. L'Hopital, and it, it's almost spelt like hospital, but it's L'Hopital. L'Hopital's rule, and it is invoked in calculus. It's a very simple rule. It's, it's deceptively simple. And I'd never heard of this guy, L'Hopital, before, all right? And I'm in the depths of my college's library, the math library. And then I, I'm just, you know, meandering, and I come upon a shelf. And the shelf must have been two meters wide, and it was the collected works of L'Hopital. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I don't know any of the rest of this work, but I know this one simple rule that applies to all of what we do in calculus. So then I thought to myself, did it really take that much life's investment in thinking about this problem to come up with the, one of the simplest rules that calculus knows? Hmm. I mean, I think the answer is yes, right? Um, but you know, even if you want to explain something in the simplest way, um, usually that's the hardest part right. to do, right? The easiest part, in a sense, is collecting all the information, being able to simplify it and unify it. Under That's a whole one, other thing. That's another, another. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. 
Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hey, remember when we did that show about the science of the golf swing? Well, let's take that to the next level. And that's because PXG has developed the Black Ops driver so golfers don't have to sacrifice distance for forgiveness. And the science proves it. PXG Black Ops Driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Ops Drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. Now that's ridiculously high. The higher the MOI, the more forgiving the club will play. So you don't have to square the ball perfectly for it to go straight and get distance. Add PXG's new advanced material face technology and you get incredible ball speed that pushes the distance to the absolute limits. More forgiveness, more distance, no sacrifices. PXG Black Ops Driver. Hit your tee shot straighter and farther. The proof is in the science. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment. Go to pxg.com slash startalk and use code startalk at checkout. That's pxg.com slash startalk. Use code startalk for free shipping on all equipment. pxg.com slash startalk. Code startalk. Is there anything that you can do, mechanisms that you can use for these for the teachers that are listening to rules of simplification like that make learning easier? What 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 you just said about making things, culling it down to where it's something that's so digestible. Are there any rules that make our brains receive information more easily? Mm. I would say yes, but maybe in a slightly different way. I think. So I was talking about dopamine and how dopamine is motivating, right? And one thing that we know is that curiosity activates these reward networks. And if you could motivate kids to just get them curious about Uh. the topic or the information, that will drive them. Like, why did Neil go and start looking through the books in the library? Like, he was motivated by something. Maybe he was curious. And that's what drives. You want the um, motivation to be coming internally to learn. Not, oh, you need to learn this. Yeah, with, 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 yeah, or or else, or or else, right? Right. But so, so that that drive to come into that that dovetails beautifully with, I think, an an important question here, especially for this conference. Um, What do we know about all that's been said about different types of learners, right? There are people who need to experience it to learn it or to read it or to, uh, what, what is known about this? Because there's so much written. And, but, but what does a neuroscientist say? Well, you know, this is a, a, actually a myth that's been perpetrated for many years, and, and it's very hard to break. So although there are different um, types of, you know, this idea of different intelligences, some people are more, you know, visual and or auditory, or they have more kinesthetic ability. Kinesthetic would be that does that, uh, movement oh, or physical body yes, engagement. Yeah. Hence my, yeah. Kinesthetic, okay. My ex- kinesthetic. Um Yes, there are individual differences in terms of those abilities. However, when you do a meta-analysis, which is basically looking across a whole group of many studies and seeing what the kind of final um, results are, teaching styles did not make a difference and did not, in terms of trying to tailor a teaching style to a specific ability, didn't change how the students learned. So the idea that tailoring a teaching method toward a student's particular abilities isn't necessarily going to make them learn the information better, uh, which is interesting. However, there are certain individual differences that do matter. Some people are better learning independently. They want to be kind of left alone. Just give me the, you know, the books and I'll do it on my own. Others need a more structured um, 
uh, approach and they need more scaffolding or help along the way. So those different learning styles, yes, but not the ones that in that kind of traditional sense of like, oh, he's a visual learner, she's an auditory But wait, but but Um, wait, but wait. When I think of science museums, uh, some of them are very focused on sort of kinetic exhibits where there are levers and buttons and and you, you sort of set the class loose into the exhibit floor and there they go. And, you know, it, that's a different experience than setting them loose in a room of books, okay? <laughs> I, I'm thinking if I'm going to learn something, I'm going to go to the museum floor First, and that might excite me, and maybe later I'll open a book. But uh, to, to, so I'm, I, it doesn't ring true what you're saying. It sounds to me like they are the connective tissue of the learning process. Like what Neil is talking about is what leads to the curiosity that you were talking about that creates this internal drive to learn. So you start off pulling levers and pushing buttons, but what that does is it incites you internally so that when you're in the room of books, you now want okay, to Okay, I'm with that. More. I'll go with that. Heather, what do you think of that? Yeah, so what I was going to say is different than the idea of different learning styles. I think across the board, having experiential learning is always best. If you can do something hands-on and get somebody involved in a real-world scenario, situation, tie the information. You know that often kids say, oh, what does this have to do with the real world? You know, why do I have to learn this calculus nonsense, right? But if you have a real-world problem, whether it's hands-on or trying to figure something out that you're dealing with in your everyday life, that opens up, like Chuck said, the doors of curiosity. Wait, but but then to Chuck's point, what we're really saying, and I remember I work in a museum, so I, I think about this a lot, and I've and I and I don't always embrace the concept in every exhibit, or at least the intent. So I, not to get into the weeds here, but there are many exhibits where you know they're official educators and they're there and they're analyzing it. They say, well, what is the principle of this exhibit, and what's what idea do you want to convey? And and then they test the person before and after the exhibit to see what they've learned. And I'm saying, people. They're spending four minutes in front of this exhibit, whereas they spend hours and hours, days and days, weeks and weeks, months and months in your classroom. So what what burden are you putting upon the exhibit design for it to do your teaching? Maybe instead, because if you fail at that, then the exhibit's got nothing going for it. But if instead, get it to Chuck's point, if the exhibit just simply excited you, and even if you got no learned, testable knowledge from it, if you say, oh my gosh, these colors are amazing, now let me go learn more. Yes, I think that that is going to entail a restructuring of the entire education system. Teachers out there. <laughs> but if, if, if instead, oh, so I'll give an example. Can I just give an example? And you were talking about emotions, all right? Again, I have a museum outlook on this, but of course, museum trips are common for schools. So, um, but you get to hear this at least firsthand. People who visited, for example, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And I said, did you go as a kid? Yeah. And I'll say, what was your favorite exhibit there? Okay, and I'll write down in advance what I already know will have been their favorite exhibit. The X. <laughs> no. <laughs> but wait, I, I want to keep you in suspense just briefly. There's another museum okay. in Philadelphia here in the United States, the Franklin Institute, named for Benjamin Franklin, a famous scientist who on the side was one of the founding fathers of the United States. I, I, I say, what was your favorite exhibit there as a kid? I will write it down. And I get the right answer 100% of the time. Okay, People go to the, the Exploratorium in San Francisco. And I'll say, what was your favorite exhibit? I'll write it down. Every time I've done this experiment, I get the right answer. Because, all right, you know what they were? So, Museum of Science and Industry, it was the coal mine exhibit, where you go into a shaft and, all right, it's that. At the, at the, at the Franklin Institute, it's the living heart. Again, the I don't know if these exhibits heart. are still there. The li- hey, 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 Chuck, you're from Philadelphia. And the heart is the bomb. Okay, you walk in and it's like it, you are inside you're ins- of a living heart. And they got the speakers and you feel the pumping. Okay, and it, yeah. it's exploratorium, a whole room of exhibits. But I know which one people remembered. It's the one where they create a tornado that's the size of the yeah. room. Okay, and in each one of those cases, you're not coming away saying, 
I now know the the thermodynamics and the and the fluid mechanics of a tornado? No, but you want to know about tornadoes, all right? And the same with the coal mine, and the same with the heart. So these are things that are that are bigger than you are, all right? And Is it true they had to shut down the coal mine exhibit because little kids kept getting black lung? I don't, I don't know. Again, I'm, these are old memories, and I haven't checked on them lately. But Heather, I'm just putting in your lap the idea that these are exhibits that I don't think. The goal was to to give someone an exam to see what they learned after the exhibit, and and if, but they created an indelible memory in everyone who's experienced it. So I think one of the reasons why is that we are all born natural scientists, right? And that is how we naturally evolved to learn and by experiencing things in the world. This whole school system was set up after the fact, right? But the way our brains work is to have experiences in the world and be naturally curious and learn from them. And we are driven by, we get like a a high, a reward by getting an answer to a question. So Neil, to be very meta here, the way you just set up that whole scenario. And then I knew the best, you know, exhibit here and here and here. And we are on bated (laughs) breath waiting for like, what's the answer? Right. Right. But that is the, that's what learning is. It's like, set it up, set it up. And we are natural curiosity will come through. We want to have answers to questions. We find ourselves in this world around us. We're trying to make sense of it when a lot of it is chaotic. You know, when before we understood weather patterns, people were trying to find connections to try to predict when the rain was going to come. And that's how we naturally experience the world from the day we're born. Wait, wait, Chuck, you agreed with me as a native of Philadelphia that that's your most memorable. Oh, absolutely. Listen, uh, without a doubt. I mean, I, uh, the, the, the heart in the Franklin Institute and the Franklin Institute was a place that I went many, many, many times as a kid. And it's a shame because I know that now there are school systems that don't fund field trips because they don't have the money. And I know that that's something that happens now throughout the nation where they have stripped this ability for schools to get in a bus and go somewhere with the kids and take them out of the classroom and put them in an immersive environment where they are stimulated on every single sense in every single way. And and Heather, I I read this and I was like, yes, this is true, that as adults, we remember school trips long after they have occurred. You remember school trips even when you don't even remember the name of the teacher who took you on the school trip. There's something about leaving the school environment and then absorbing an entire other world out there and then returning. This would happen if you visited a planetarium, all right? Because you can't do that necessarily in a classroom. So just to echo Chuck's point, So what about this, Heather, from a neurological standpoint, experientially, can we achieve at least a close facsimile to some of this stuff with like, um, what's that, Oculus or whatever that thing? Oh, oh, virtual reality. Thank you, virtual reality. Mm -hmm. uh, Neurologically, are, are, are we close to it? Just to to make a a point, a finer point on this, there are two types of memory. And one is sort of called semantic memory, which is the memory of, of knowledge of facts you know, just taking in the information. And then there's what's called episodic memory, which is your remembering your experiences. And, you know, that's going on the trip, remembering the bus ride, remembering. And then along the way, you learn some facts, but they're tied into your experience. And those are two different memory systems. Uh, That's an important thing to know if you're designing a school system. Oh my gosh. Well, well, to this point of of virtual reality, uh, just before we go to Q&A, but We've just, we are still kind of in a pandemic year where almost all learning had to now take place through a video screen or through, through a computer screen. And is that, there are people, I think, who have struggled with that. Could you comment on the difference between learning from a human being or an image of a human being, even if it's a live image, they're not there in flesh and blood, versus someone who's sitting in the room with you? Can you think about that difference? in your field? Absolutely. You know, so a lot of it has to do with, again, how our brains evolve to communicate and so, and socialize. And when we're in these kind of 2D Zoom worlds, first of all, we're not making direct eye contact, right? I'm sort of looking at you and my screen, but not looking at you as I'm looking into the camera, right? So we're not communicating in that way. There's something a little off. Our brain recognizes that. We're not picking up on odors. We're not picking up on body motions. All of this information 
that's coming in unconsciously is helping us learn, is helping us pay attention, right? Because you're in that virtual world, but then I can look behind me and I'm in a whole different world over here. And there's a kind of separation between us. We're not embodied in the same space, which I think is meaningful. But that being said, I think there are ways in which there are some advantages with the virtual learning. You know, you can create um, kind of video gamification. You know, you can socialize learning in those ways. If you use it in creative ways, it could be beneficial or at least supplement. In That's a very learning. important point, Heather. What you're saying, not to put words in your mouth, but actually I am, aren't you, you're saying that the moment we all got pushed to Zoom classes, if you did that trying to do exactly what you previously did in real life, it's bound to fail in some fundamental ways. But if instead you say, here's a different way of interacting with my students, how can I best exploit that, those tools, rather than try to mimic something that isn't this at all? Is that a fair way to say that? Exactly. You know, obviously with the pandemic, it happened so quickly that there was no time to kind of recalibrate, right? But I think, you know, as we can now, maybe in retrospect, and now that we have time on our hands a little bit more, we can start developing the online uh, tools that we have in better ways. For the next pandemic. (laughs) For the next pandemic, obviously, yes. (laughs) So we'll be more prepared. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, damn. Do you want to set up your child for success? Of course you do. Maybe you want to save money on private tutoring, or maybe it's just out of your budget altogether. Is this a big school year for your child? Like maybe they're starting kindergarten, middle school, or high school, or some other milestone. Maybe your family moved and they're starting at a new school. Is your child ahead? Not getting challenged enough in class? Well, we love that little smarty, but we want them to be engaged. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can use it at home on the computer or on the go through the app on your phone or your tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything itself. And no more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Star Talk. Visit IXL.com slash Star Talk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hey, we'd like to acknowledge the following Patreon patrons. Steve Vera, Mike Ness, and Stephen Greenway. Thanks, guys. Great to give you a shout-out. And for anybody else who would like their very own Patreon shout-out, please go to patreon.com slash Radio and support us. 
Well, let's let's see what what Dave is going to bring to us uh, from the the greater universe of the world. Dave, come on on. There you go. I am back. I, I tell you, there's too many good questions. We're, let's dive into them. There's some really great mm-hmm, ones. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm gonna. There's a there's a lot of questions about dopamine, and I'm gonna rephrase it in an interesting way because we before we started uh, the group here was having a chat about classical music. And I, I think it's well known that Beethoven composed while he was walking. Was was that because did the dopamine help him, or was the activity, or was there some connection with that? Yeah, there are people who have habits that they associate with creative moments. That's a, if you if you generalize that inquiry, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think with exercise, number one, you're getting more blood to the brain. You know, you're getting more oxygen to the brain. So it always helps with cognition and thinking. But the other thing with, let's say, going wait, for a wait, walk wait, and getting outside. No one ever really did anything great <laughs> locked in a closet. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Starved <laughs> of oxygen. That's um, not... <laughs> yes, that's not the best place okay. to come up with your creative ideas. Mm-hmm. However, um, what, what I think is really um, important is that when you go out for a walk or go do something physical, in a way, you're shutting off a certain networking, but you're kind of not thinking. You're letting your mind go. You're letting it kind of be free and unconstrained, right? When you're kind of thinking about trying to memorize something or take in information, you're having that very um, convergent thinking. You're limited. But when you kind of let go and let your mind go, that's when, again, these novel associations between ideas can come um, and the inspiration. Mm-hmm. And the thought. So sometimes just literally getting out there and being physical forces you to not think. Like when you have writer's block or you're stuck, get up, go for a walk, go play tennis, go mountain climbing. And you might, it might unblock you in that way. And so I think a lot of these great philosophers and musicians and creative people would go for, Nietzsche would go for walks all the time and he would come up with his ideas as well. So I think there is something to that. Excellent. Dave, what else you got? Yeah, there's a really good related question. This is from, uh, Wilder Pertle, and he's asking. But from where? Uh, where are these? I, these are. I want to hear the world where, here. Where please. are you from? I don't know where he's from. Oh, okay. Where are you from? <laughs> um, let's see if we can find in the chat. But um, so there is this model. Model. He calls it ABK. I've seen Vark, where it's visual, auditory, uh, reading, writing, and kinesthetic. But he's saying that. Well, does maybe the different styles just mix it up and make the learning more interesting? And that's what we're we're seeing. Mm. Mm. So it cuts the monotony of whatever else you'd be doing. Yeah. So today we'll do visual. Then later we're going to do auditory. And then later we're going to do hands-on. What do you think of that, Heather? I like that a lot because I think it has more to do with um, the novelty. So the thing with dopamine that gets it going is change, novelty. And that keeps... So if somebody's just droning on that classic like Bueller... Oh, yeah. From Ferris Bueller's Day Off. From Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's this really drone, like, boring teacher. And he's like, Bueller, Bueller. And it's just mundane. But that's not a great way to learn. But the changing it up, different activities. You know, today we're going to do this. Tomorrow we're doing something else. Keeps it fresh. Keeps it exciting. By the way, that actor was a former, actual former speechwriter for Richard Nixon, by the way. His name is Ben, ben Stein. Stein. Ben Stein. He's actually yep. an entertaining comedian. Um, hey, um, can I can I ask you this from Cynthia? Well, oh, Chuck is know, checking out the questions too. Oh my god! Yeah, go for it, Chuck. Go for oh, it. Go for it, Chuck. We're changing it up. How good is IQ at predicting your intelligence? Can a medium IQ, provided it works hard, do the same thing as somebody with a one forty plus? First of all. Is IQ a real thing? So, not really. So, so you know, IQ, what we do when I measure somebody's um, abilities, we're looking at different cognitive abilities. So somebody might be really good in sort of visual spatial processing. Some may be, might be good at, at, at uh, memory, um, at verbal abilities. There are all these different kinds of abilities. Everybody has a different, what we call a neurocognitive profile, like a thumbprint right? Different areas of special, better abilities than others. And then this IQ score is like taking all of these different abilities and trying to average it all together into this one sort of number, which I find is, doesn't, is not very meaningful, right? Unless it's at the extremes. So, you know, when you have somebody who has 
um, severe a mental disability and they're, you know, three or standard deviations below the norm, then, you know, that is a good indicator that they might need special help or, or whatever it may be. And then again, if you have say three standard deviations above the norm, these people are, are going to need maybe more enriched um, teaching programs, right? Because their brains are working a little bit differently. So I think it's okay for like a kind of indicator at the extremes, but other than that, you know, the difference between a, a one 15 IQ and a 120 or what, you know, it does, it's kind of meaningless. So I take it with a grain of salt. Uh, can I add to that, Heather? Because I've, I've done a fair amount of thinking on this topic, not from a neuroscientist perspective, but just as a person who enjoys academics and learning. And in other words, uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but I'm, I'm kind of smart. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody enjoys learning. <laughs> yeah, okay. I've never looked at this from a neuroscientist standpoint, but... You know, speaking as one of the world's most foremost science educators. No, no. So here's my point. I have this is this is a true fact. I've never had an IQ test in my life. I attended public schools in New York City my whole life. They do not administer IQ tests in public schools the way they often do in private schools. And I thought about it and I said, I'm glad I don't know my IQ score. Because if it were low, and I knew that early on, what would that have done to my ambitions? What would, what would I have said? Oh, I, you know, I really like the universe. No, but my IQ says I'll never do it, so I'll take up something else. And then I thought, suppose it's really high. And then I said, yeah, I couldn't do anything. And then, like, how, well, how would that, what would that do to my relationship to other people and my attitudes towards them? And my, that would, I, it would turn me into, a, you know, into an obnoxious... And, and I, so I just worried what force it would have on who and what I would become. So I said, I don't care. I don't care. I will be where my ambitions take me. And I can tell you this, that IQ does not code for ambition. And for me, ambition is what drives this world. And I can also tell you this. Only smart people say they don't care what their <laughs> IQ is. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I just what? didn't want any person, place, thing, or number to get between me and what I wanted to become in life. That's all I'm saying. And you know that people who have whatever challenges they do, they can have ambitions that can get them much farther than anyone would have said they would, would have gone. And let me tell this, just while we're here, I, I might have said this. I'm, have we done this five times already, Dave, or something? Let me just, I'm going to, if I said it before, I'm saying it again, all right? In my K through 12, kindergarten through high school, in all the teachers I've ever had, none of them would have pointed to me in their class and say, hey, he, he'll go far. Watch for him. Yeah. He's going to, none of them, none of them. Meanwhile, I've known since I was nine years old that I wanted to be an astrophysicist. But none of them had these cues. None of them saw my ambitions. They didn't know I was head of a, an astronomy club that I just created or that I bought a telescope by walking other people's dogs and using that to then create a whole world that wasn't showing up in the teacher's classroom. And that's who I was, and I knew I was that. So I'm not going to let the, the teacher or the, and, and, and she got me started here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just, okay. And, 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 and I was going to tweet this, but I said, no, it'd be too controversial. I won't. But I will tell you here and now, okay? For every student who does not get an A on an exam, there's a teacher telling them what they should not be when they grow up. And I, and I object. I object to that mode of interaction between a system that's trying to educate you and a person who's trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up. Okay, but isn't there a balance there, Neil? Let's be for real, because on the one hand, you don't want to discourage anyone from being there or realizing their true potential in life. But on the other hand, there are people who create unrealistic uh, desires and expectations for children by not telling them uh, certain things. Like the the mom who's just like, look at you, baby, you can sing. Don't you listen to them people. You can sing, baby. You can sing. You can sing. And the kid is toned down, wouldn't know a note if a note came up and punched it in the throat. And it's, ah, ah. Oh, don't you worry, baby, you can sing. So where is that balance? <laughs> Heather, say something. Chuck, 
Chuck, did your parents tell you you're funny? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you the truth, Dave. You know what my parents told me more than anything? What? Shut up. (laughs) And look at me now. All right, Heather, say something here. Bail us out. Yeah, it's the nature-nurture kind of debate. And and I do think that there are certain, let's say, genetic predispositions that people are born with. There are studies that show that. For example, musical ability is one of them. Um, Some people are just born like with perfect pitch and, you know, or athletic abilities. And so like, I'm never going to be the best, you know, basketball player because I'm not a certain height, let's say, perhaps. But given that, within our sort of, I think the genetics is what creates our boundaries, perhaps the limitations of, of, of how high we can go or, or low. But the motivation that you were talking about, Neil, is what pushes us to our greatest, um, to the, the height of where we can go within our genetic boundaries. And so somebody might be born with a predisposition for a huge, a high IQ, but they never do anything with it. They're not motivated. Then somebody else who might have a lower IQ on paper is so motivated. They're at the top of their scale. They're doing way better than that. Well, that's my whole point. That's the, that's all I'm trying to say here. Yeah. Okay. That. Right. Of okay. Course. But but like to Chuck's point with the singing ability, you know, that person may be practice, 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 and they'll get as good as they can get, but they just don't have the vocal cords to get any further. But I think the people who reach the highest heights are those who have a genetic ability plus the motivation to get to those high Yeah, but I would heights, say you know, for practically every field. truly successful person in life, in business, in finance, in politics, and go to every single one of them and to a person, they will be stories in their life about people telling them that they, that they won't succeed or that they should not pursue. They all have these failure stories. And so I just don't want to presume that it's a given that someone says, oh, you'll never be good at that. I'm going to use that as an excuse to be even better than you ever thought of. And that happened to my father. Didn't I tell the story? That happened to my father. He was in high school and then in gym class. And and my father was muscular, right? And the teacher said to him, look at Cyril Tyson. He has the body that will never be good at track because they were about to enter the track and field unit of the gym class. And my father said to himself, no one is going to tell me what I can't be in life. He used that as motivation to take up track. And within five years, he was world-class and had the fifth fastest time in the world in the event that he specialized in. So it's examples like that. The fact that that even exists at all as an example tells me I don't give a rat's ass about what you think my genetic limits are because my ambitions, as far as I'm concerned, transcend it all. Well, it sounds to me like you're making a case for negative motivation as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned, if you're a teacher, you should tell a kid they can't do anything because then they will go on and achieve the highest height of everything. Dave, give me some more questions. Wait, can I say one thing? I have to call out my high school guidance counselor in the context of this, who, because I was a very good student academically, but I attend occasionally cut class. I'm just saying I was a little, you know, I cut class occasionally. So my guidance counselor said, I said, I need the college applications at the time. There was no online. The the guidance counselor had to give them to you. And he said, don't even bother applying to college. You're never going to go anywhere anyway. And didn't give me the applications. And I had to drive to the school myself, go to their offices, get the applications physically, fill them out myself, no help from the guidance counselor. So I just want to call out my high school guidance counselor for giving me the motivation (laughs) to excel. Heather, is there something going on in your mind when you get that negative feedback that that triggers dopamine or, you know, some reaction that makes some people, a lot of people are like that. Yeah, yeah. why do some people use the negative force as a positive driver and others absorb it and then it it squashes their ambitions? What's the difference there? That'd be useful to know if we can harness that. Question, yeah. You know, that has a lot to do, a lot more to do with, with self-esteem, to be mm. honest. So people who have a very high self-esteem take that criticism and say, you know, no, thank you. I'm going to show you because I, I know internally I'm better than that. I don't, you know, but if you don't have that confidence, you absorb it. 
and it can actually bring you down and make you less motivated. So I don't think it works well for everybody that that's that sort of negative uh, style in that sense. Um, it, it depends on how it interacts with your self-esteem and your confidence. Yeah. Can I ask a question for Cynthia Basin? I know my times tables because I recited them while I walked to the bus a half mile from school each day. Okay, uphill both ways. <laughs> in the and, snow. Uh, <laughs> in the snow. <laughs> However, the reason why I asked that question to her is because that's a rote learning. And then you have like my kids, they don't do that. The teachers do not give them any. Yes, rote it's been falling out of favor over all. the years. So what is what's going on there for both of those things? And what are the merit merits of like rote learning versus other types of learning? Well, I think there's just something also with the physical activity and the rote learning. Like sometimes people pace back and forth. Um, they're, they're, the motor cortex in the brain is, is close to other areas of the brain that instantiate, that, that um, sort of take in that information. And so there's something about the pace of moving and walking. Wait, so motor cortex of the brain, that specifically means what? Motor cortex. It, it's the part of the brain that controls your body oh, gotcha. movement. There's okay. like a strip of the brain um, that controls Got all it. the body mm -hmm. movements. And it's right part of the pre, just in the sort of back part of the prefrontal cortex where a lot of the, the higher level learning takes place. So they're very intimately connected. And so you stimulate one part of the brain and because they're all connected, it starts to stimulate the other parts that you need to use for thinking. Um, so that's one thing. And in terms of memorization, look, I think there. There is something to that just practicing rote memory at some level because it, it it's teaching your brain. It's it's sort of gearing up those connections so that you can better have a better memory in general. So I don't I'm not against rote memorization. I just don't I think that that can be a, a piece of learning, but not the entire. You know, there needs to be a richer context with for that information to be mm -hmm. absorbed. There's a really good uh, related question. This is way in the beginning, and it was from uh, Eduardo Arujo Pradier. I hope I have that right. And he's asking you specifically, is there any study about the impact of technology and learning on the brain? And I just want to expand on that a little bit. It's like, you know how sports, technology has transformed sports in many ways. Has technology transform, transformed learning? Absolutely. I mean, now, you know, in the classrooms, I mean, well, depending on the school, obviously, and what they have access to, but, you know, they're giving kids like iPads now to learn on and they're, they're using, you know, they're trying to incorporate these techniques in the Wait, classroom. wait, Heather, I want, let me make this and more think, controversial. Yeah. There are entire educational okay. philosophies that reject the infusion of technology into the classroom on the grounds that somehow it will disrupt what would be an authentic learning environment. So what would you say to these educational philosophies that are at odds with what role technology might or could play in this whole enterprise? So like anything else that sort of humans create, I think it, it's in how we use it. So if we use it as a tool that is interactive with a real human, not a replacement for, because the best learning happens interactively with real humans, I think, but you can supplement it with these tools. And depending on how we use it, it could be a force for good or evil. Um, you know, and so, you know, the answer is kind of both, right? Depending on how it's used, it could be a detriment or it could be something that, you know, bolsters up our education. And I think we're in still in that early stage of trying to figure out what the best, how the best way to incorporate technology into the classroom. Because all things, all things that. considered, the technology is a relatively new thing in the history of education, right? So uh, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it, did take one or two generations to get the bugs out. Well, and education ad adopts technology slowly, slower than right. you know consumers do. So mm -hmm. it's, it'll take yeah, even longer, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you know, Pedro Silva says this: uh, kids use too much video games, and these video games can be used to teach physics, <laughs> used with some help from kids to understand more. Wasn't um, Angry Birds and that test a lot of physics knowledge? I think uh, Angry Birds. I mean, there are some video games that use more cognitive abilities than others, I would think. Right, Heather? There are certain, you know, things kids can pick up from video games. There's like speed of processing speed and 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 it's paying attention to multiple things. But but I think there are even better ways to use the, the technology in that sort of gamification way. You know, like my daughter it was using this thing um, where, with coding. 
but you know, you code this like friendly robot to go through these adventures. And so there's like motivation there to learn the coding, you know, making it fun. You're actually learning a, a skill set, but you're doing it while creating or playing this game. And I think that kind of integration of technology is is creative and can be really helpful rather than just sitting there playing, you know, I don't know, angry birds. But here's, well, so let me, wait, here's a definite birds, here's but. a definite consequence of the video game era is that when I was growing up, you to be accused of being all thumbs meant you were clumsy. Now, all thumbs <laughs> meant you were quite dexterous on, on a video game. That, you don't hear, I'm all thumbs anymore. That's just one. We got time for just a couple more questions before we finish yeah. out the hour. But you, you said earlier that, you know, actually doing something, it, it helps uh, cement things in your memory uh, somehow. But also, too, is, is that innate? It, you know, um, I've seen things... Like you, everybody knows you put a toddler on, you know, in their high chair. And the first thing they do is they throw their Cheerios on the floor. And are they testing gravity? Are they testing Newton's law of gravitation? I mean, are they experimenting? And do we know that? Could we know that, right? Yes. And, you know, I'm going to recommend a book called The Scientist in the Crib by a developmental psychologist, Alison Gottnick, who, which covers all this research, um, just, just that, saying these things that toddlers are doing are are experimenting and learning physics. Yes, they are learning about gravity. They're all of, all of it. And so like, you know, I was saying before, if you can scale that up to the adult brain now and create a new interactive, obviously we've picked up on a lot of the um, physics through our experience over time. And now we need to create big, you know, large exhibitions or whatever it may be that make us continue to be curious about the world around us. Is that what you mean? And explore. What do you mean when you say scale up, you mean just more in terms uh, of, more, of size and impact? Well, not necessarily size, but creativity. So maybe for an adult, it is um, the, the, the experience is how do we figure out with all these pieces how to build this robot, you know, and you have to start to figure it out. Whereas as a kid, you're using Legos to understand how Yeah, to Dave, I think together. when she meant, when she said scale up, she, she meant at some point, take the teenager out of the high chair. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Put them in another kind of environment. And Heather, I just want to push back mildly on you. If your if your toddler pushes the Cheerios to the floor and does not watch it fall, they're not doing a science experiment. Yep. <laughs> they're just they're just saying F you. <laughs> Making a mess. That's, that's okay. what when they throw it in your face, that's, that's not physics. That's another whole other thing. By the, by the way, the, the, best, the best joke I ever heard about uh, baby cognition was where we were on a plane and a baby would not stop crying. It just kept crying so violently. And uh, a guy said, God, that baby must be really annoying to that mother. And then I said, no. What if that baby is crying because he knows we're on the wrong approach vector? <laughs> <laughs> and he does not have language to tell us. Yet. <laughs> That's a that would be a weird sci-fi storytelling right there, right? Right. <laughs> I often think of babies like a little bit, they're, they're actually, they're, they're, we do make this analogy. They're kind of like what adult brain is like on psychedelics in a way. They haven't developed the filter system. So everything is coming in, it's unstructured and everything feels new and interesting and exciting. So people often describe that when they're on these psychedelics, like, whoa, look at my hands or, you know, everything looks different, interesting. They're trying to figure So that's why out. adults are not intrigued by someone dangling keys in front of them. Yes. Where the kid is like, Whoa. Whoa. And they have, yeah. Whoa. Keys. Well, guys, it's easier to distract them. We got to land this plane to follow the analogy yeah, there. Um, but Heather, it's always great to have you on Star Talk, And thanks for giving your time, not only to Star Talk, but for this a virtual conference for teachers. And it's Always great when we know exactly who our audience is because that can fine-tune all that we have to share with them. Chuck, always good to have you, dude. Always a pleasure. Uh, and Dave, the, you, you're in the driver's seat from now on, dude. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, that was fascinating. We're going to continue the conversation all day, I'm sure. 
And I learned a lot of pile of notes here already. I have a ton of questions. We'll have to do this again. And, and I have to give my official sign-off, which is I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, bidding you to keep looking up. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.